Chapter Thirty of Characters of Shakespeare's Plays by William Hazlitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Taming of the Shrew. The Taming of the Shrew is almost the only one of Shakespeare's comedies that has a regular plot and downright moral. It is full of bustle, animation, and rapidity of action. It shows admirably how self-will is only to be got the better of by stronger will, and how one degree of ridiculous perversity is only to be driven out by another still greater. Petruchio is a madman in his senses, a very honest fellow, who hardly speaks a word of truth, and succeeds in all his tricks and impostures. He acts his assumed character to the life, with a most fantastical extravagance, with complete presence of mind, with untired animal spirits, and without a particle of ill-humour from beginning to end. The situation of poor Catherine, worn out by his incessant persecutions, becomes at last almost as pitiable as it is ludicrous, and it is difficult to say which to admire most, the unaccountableness of his actions or the unalterableness of his resolutions. It is a character which most husbands ought to study, unless, perhaps, the very audacity of Petruchio's attempt might alarm them more than his success would encourage them. What a sound must the following speech carry to some married ears. Think you a little din can daunt my ears? Have I not in my time heard lions roar? Have I not heard the sea, puffed up with winds, rage like an angry boar, chafed with sweat? Have I not heard great ordnance in the field, and heaven's artillery, thunder in the skies? Have I not in a pitched battle heard loud larums, neighing steeds, and trumpets clang? And do you tell me of a woman's tongue that gives not half so great a blow to hear as will a chestnut in a farmer's fire? Not all Petruchio's rhetoric would persuade more than, quote, some dozen followers to be of this heretical way of thinking. He unfolds his scheme for the taming of the shrew on a principle of contradiction, thus. I'll woo her with some spirit when she comes. Say that she rail. Why, then, I'll tell her plain she sings as sweetly as a nightingale. Say that she frown. I'll say she looks as clear as morning roses, newly washed with dew. Say she be mute, will not speak a word. Then I'll commend her volubility, and say she uttereth piercing eloquence. If she do bid me pack, I'll give her thanks, as though she bid me stay by her a week. If she denied a wed, I'll crave the day, when I shall ask the bands, and when be married he accordingly gains her consent to the match by telling her father that he has got it disappoints her by not returning at the time he has promised to wed her and when he returns creates no small consternation by the oddity of his dress and equipage this however is nothing to the astonishment excited by his mad-brained behaviour at the marriage here is the account of it by an eyewitness Gremio tut she's a lamb a dove a fool to him i'll tell you sir lucentio when the priest should ask if caterina should be his wife ay by gog's wounds quoth he and swore so loud that all amazed the priest let fall the book and as he stooped again to take it up 
this mad-brained bridegroom took him such a cough that down fell priest and book and book and priest now take them up quoth he if any list tronio what said the wench when he rose up again Gremio trembled and shook for why he stamped and swore as if the vicar meant to cousin him but after many ceremonies done he calls for wine a health quoth he as if he'd been abroad carousing with his mates after a storm quaffed off the muscadel and threw the sops all in the sexton's face having no other cause but that his beard grew thin and hungrily and seemed to ask his sops as he was drinking this done he took the bride about the neck and kissed her lips with such a clamorous smack that at their parting all the church echoed and i seeing this came thence for very shame and after me i know the rout is coming such a mad marriage never was before the most striking and at the same time laughable feature in the character of petruchio throughout is the studied approximation to the intractable character of real madness his apparent insensibility to all external considerations an utter indifference to everything but the wild and extravagant freaks of his own self-will there is no contending with a person on whom nothing makes any impression but his own purposes and who is bent on his own whims just in proportion as they seem to want common sense with him a thing's being plain and reasonable is a reason against it the airs he gives himself are infinite and his caprices as sudden as they are groundless the whole of his treatment of his wife at home is in the same spirit of ironical attention and inverted gallantry everything flies before his will like a conjurer's wand and he only metamorphoses his wife's temper by metamorphosing her senses and all the objects she sees at a word speaking such are his insisting that it is the moon and not the sun which they see etc this extravagance reaches its most pleasant and poetical height in the scene where on their return to her father's they meet old vincentio whom petruchio immediately addresses as a young lady petruchio good morrow gentle mistress where away tell me sweet kate and tell me truly too hast thou beheld a fresher gentlewoman such war white and red within her cheeks what stars do spangle heaven with such beauty as those two eyes become that heavenly face fair lovely maid once more good day to thee sweet kate embrace her for beauty's sake hortensio he'll make the man mad to make a woman of him catherine young uh, budding virgin fair and fresh and sweet whither away or where is thy abode happy the parents of so fair a child happier the man whose favourable stars allot thee for his lovely bedfellow petruchio why how now kate i hope thou art not mad this is a man old wrinkled faded withered not a maiden as thou sayest he is catherine pardon old father my mistaken eyes i have been so bedazed with the uh, the sun that everything i look on seemeth green now i perceive thou art a reverend father the whole is carried on with equal spirit as if the poet's comic muse had wings of fire 
It is strange how one man could be so many things, but so it is. The concluding scene in which trial is made of the obedience of the new married wives, so triumphantly for Petruchio, is a very happy one. In some parts of this play there is a little too much about music masters and masters of philosophy. They were things of greater rarity in those days than they are now. Nothing, however, can be better than the advice which Tranio gives his master for the prosecution of his studies. The mathematics and the metaphysics fall to them as you find your stomach serves you. No profit grows, where is no pleasure tame. In brief, sir, study what you most affect. We have heard the honeymoon called, quote, an elegant Catherine and Petruchio. We suspect we do not understand this word elegant in the sense that many people do. But in our sense of the word, we should call Lucentio's description of his mistress elegant. Tranio, I saw her coral lips to move, and with her breath she did perfume the air. Sacred and sweet was all I saw in her. When Biondello tells the same Lucentio for his encouragement, I know a wench married in an afternoon as she went to the garden for parsley to stuff a rabbit, and so may you, sir. There's nothing elegant in this, and yet we hardly know which of the two passages is the best. The Taming of the Shrew is a play within a play. It is supposed to be a play acted for the benefit of Sly the Tinker, who is made to believe himself a lord when he wakes after a drunken brawl. The character of Sly and the remarks with which he accompanies the play are as good as the play itself. His answer when he is asked how he likes it, uh, indifferent well, tis a good piece of work, would twere done, is in good keeping, as if he were thinking of his Saturday night's job. Sly does not change his taste with this new situation, but in the midst of splendor and luxury still calls out lustily and repeatedly for a pot of the smallest ale. He is very slow in giving up his personal identity and his sudden advancement. I am Christopher Sly. Call me not honor nor lordship. I never drink sack of my life, and if you give me any conserves, give me conserves of beef. Never ask me what raiment I'll wear, for I have no more doublets than packs, no more stockings than legs, no, no more shoes than feet. Nay, sometimes more feet than shoes, or such shoes as my toes look through the over-leather. What, would you make me mad? Am I not Christopher Sly, old Sly's son of Burton Heath? By birth, a peddler, by education, a card-maker, by transmutation, a bear-herd, and now by present profession, a tinker? Pah, ask Marian Hackett, the fat alewife of Wincott, if she know me not, if she say I am not fourteen pence on the score for sheer ale, score me up for the lyingest knave in Christendom. This is honest. The slies are no rogues, as he says of himself. We have a great predilection for this representative of the family, and what makes us like him the better is that we take him to be of kin, not many degrees removed, to Sancho Panza. End of Taming of the Shrew